0: Welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. On today's show, two guests. We've got Baltimore Orioles outfielder Cedric Mullins and Adam Durowski of sportsreference.com to talk about the site's project. The Negro Leagues are major leagues. Let's get right to it. On today's show, we're joined by Orioles center fielder Cedric Mullins. He's having a breakthrough season. At the time of this taping, he's top five in the AL in batting average on base percentage and OPS, as well as many, many sabermetric stats. He's also top three among center fielders in what we call good fielding plays. Think of those as if you were tracking web gems or the number of times you appeared in quick pitch. Cedric's stats hold up against just about everybody in the American League of this side of Vlad Guerrero Jr., and we'll get to that in a second. First of all, The kind of the admission for for being on the podcast, we ask every player to tell us the first time that you remember making a great defensive play and what that was like.
1: I think so, it was T ball for sure. And I recall having an unassisted triple play. I was playing first base at the time, and I think there was a pop fly in foul territory that I had to run after, make like a slide diving type of catch. And I literally ran all the way to like second base. To tag that runner out and didn't tag up, and I ran all the way back to first base to tag the guy on first that didn't tag up as well.
0: That might be the best one we've heard. We've heard a few a few doozies. That one's pretty good. So that kind of goes right into your highlight reel. And I watched some of your best catches last night. You started the year with a diving catch against Kia Hernandez, where you went left center to right center. That was pretty crazy. He made a skidding catch on Nelson Cruz by the right center field fence. You have a nice reaching catch against mid Rosario. And then you have two of what I would call Superman catches. One against Cesar Hernandez, the other against Jonathan Villar of the Mets. Uh, so a simple question after
1: going through all of those.
0: How do you do what you do defensively?
1: Uh, I'd say for preparation and just you know using my instincts to be able to get the jumps on the ball that I do. And, you know, it's, uh, during batting practice, I go out there, even if I'm not going 100%, it's just a matter of working on my first step, and you know, that translates to the game.
0: How much of that is figuring out the ballpark in the center field configuration?
1: It plays a part as well, getting an idea of how much room I have before I go crashing into a wall. So something I take into account. And, you know, I'm more uh, adjusted at Camden Yards for sure, just because it's home field. But when we go to away games, so I do go out there and get a feel for where the wall is, how many steps I have on the morning track, stuff like that.
0: All right, I want to get back to the warning track in a second, but I want to talk Superman catches first. We've interviewed Kiermeyer, Buxton, Pilar, Michael A. Taylor. The Superman catch is kind of a Pilar thing, and it's your thing. And I describe it as like the flying through the air with the dive. And Kevin had a good story about how it became his. How did the Superman catch become a thing for you?
1: I don't know. I think just wanted to put an all-out effort into you know making a catch. and There's always this split decision moment where you say, okay, if I jump right now, I can catch this versus, okay, if I, <laughs> there's no way I can catch this. I need to just stay on my feet, you know, play the ball off the wall, you know, just, and uh, just having that instinct is, uh you know, it's it's amazing to have out on the field and you're able to, you know, help your defense out and help your, help your team. When did your success
0: rate start to become higher on that?
1: That's a hard one to call. I feel like I'm trying to remember when I started, I guess, diving more, and it's kind of hard to think of a exact time, but I can assure you like around around 12, 13 for sure. I started having more diving catches. You no, know, just just I wasn't always leaving my feet. I feel like uh, I was catching a lot of balls in the air, but there were times where, you know, I just have to lay out. You know, guys were uh, either on a ball that wasn't hit as well, ball in the gap. You know, it's, it's pretty fun when you make the catch them.
0: Yeah, I was going to say it was a pretty fun place. Uh, on the Kia Hernandez one, that was an interesting one to me because he completely defied what the positioning was for him. You went all the way from one gap to the other gap, and it was legit like uh, you know, football field kind of sprint. How did you go about making that play, and how do you handle your defensive positioning?
1: You know, we have meetings about how we're going to play guys, and we have like cards that have basically their tendencies on where they might hit a ball, depending on what how- one strike or less than two strikes or two strikes on him. So that's kind of how we play our positioning and then we adjust in the game depending on how they're hitting that day. For that catch, you know, I was playing them opposite field. I was okay you know, he might be a little late on the fastball. And he got an off speed pitch that he missed and pulled in the air, pull side. And you know, I was running for it. I saw Mounty got, you know, a slightly uh worse read than I did. So I know he was about to lay out. And I called him off just in time so that he wouldn't have to, like, crash into me. And then that's when I went full sprint across.
0: What's a call out like on something like that? Is it like, I got it or something like that?
1: Yes, I got it. I I got it as many times as I can until he hears me. All right. I I do want to
0: touch on the cruise catch because you mentioned the warning track before. Uh, You kind of skidded along the warning track on that one. And I was a little worried for your safety. Can you explain what went into
1: making that play? Yeah, I was worried for my safety, too. So uh, (laughs) that play, I was playing him kind of straight up, maybe one step opposite field, and he inside out of the fastball, and I'm like, okay, he hit that pretty good for the pitch location. I'm, you know, dead sprint, and I'm looking at everything at that point. I'm looking at where my positioning is versus the wall. I'm looking at Santander to see how far away he might be from the ball because he might have a better, better angle on it. And I don't even recall if I was able to call him off on that play because it was just one of those places where it was just it almost seemed like no man's land so it was just whoever can get there can get there and when i saw that i was about a step or two from the wall on a dead sprint i said okay threw my glove up with the backhand and i was like i gotta time this just right to make a slide and uh, it was it worked out well because i still hit my knee at the bottom of the uh, wall which is all cement but uh, it was, it was uh, definitely less painful than if I were to stay up and just go full crash into it. How, how much do you worry about your safety when you play center field? Oh, you got to stay smart. Uh, <laughs> I'm definitely willing to put my body on the line. It's just a matter of how my body's feeling that day, the angle I am at the wall. And there's a lot involved. It's mostly instincts.
0: Okay. Two more quick, uh, quick questions. They're both on the same topic, kind of a self-awareness kind of thing. What's something that you've worked to improve yourself at defensively and how did you go about doing it?
1: Yeah, so the thing that I'm continuing to improve upon is uh, arm strength. I think right now I'm just not creating the right spin on the ball. I know that when I'm long tossing, I can get the ball there with some velo behind it. So I know that I have a decent arm. It's just a matter of translating that into games. Maybe I speed myself up, up sometimes and I don't get the the grip that I want, and it comes out like a cutter. So it might go; it might not have the true carry that I want. And then the other thing is just continuing to improve on the little things, just getting that first read, making sure that I'm opening up correctly, filling around balls correctly because of different playing surfaces.
0: So you're the first outfielder that we've talked to that's talked about the idea, I guess, of spin rate for an outfielder? is that something that that's tracked or is that just something where you're like okay I, my eyes can see that that my throws are, are doing what they're not supposed it, to be doing
1: yeah it's mostly visual I, I wouldn't say spin rate per se just more spin in general just mm-hmm. true backspin to uh to give the ball the best carry you know side spin and stuff like that that's going to create the movement especially on a further distance throw it makes a small cutter look like a 50 foot cutter so it's you know something i'm continuing to work on and you know it's slowly getting better
0: and that said, you have, I saw two throwouts this year, the one against Jeff McNeil and the one against Sean Murphy, where they looked like the look on their face after it was kind of like they regretted that they went against you.
1: Yeah, a couple of moments where they were being aggressive on the base pass and I was able to fill the ball cleanly, come up with a strong throw, yeah.
0: Okay, so the other self-awareness topic relates to the improvements that you've made in hitting and the idea of knowing your body and knowing your skills. You made the decision to stop switch hitting and only hit lefty. And your numbers are really, really good now, left on left. Uh, What went into making the decision? And if I may ask, why didn't you make it sooner?
1: The decision to go on ahead and drop hitting right-handed was basically solely on the numbers. You know, I had plenty of data at that point to give me an idea of how I was uh, playing at the time and how I might potentially progress. And it didn't show there wasn't going to be enough improvement for me to be as competitive as I wanted to be uh, as a switch hitter. So we decided to drop it you know, go with my best swing. You know, I still have a, a decent eye to play. It was just a matter of getting adjusted to arm angles, different spins, balls coming at my head and then somehow ending up in the strike zone, you know, just stuff like that. And then, you know, the decision to not make it sooner is because of the value that switch hitting has. Like it's, it's something that is very rare. And if you can do it well, it, the value behind that as a player is just almost exponential because it's you're able to continuously find a way to be in the lineup.
0: Now, just I want to close on this note. Two years ago, you went six for 64 in the majors. You hit 205 at AAA. That's a low point. We've seen guys go low point to high point this year, particularly with no hitters, with Spencer Turnbull, Carlos Rodon, Joe uh, Joe Musgrove. But it's true for hitters too. Can you contrast where you were then with where you are now? And what's the biggest thing that happened for you in getting you from
1: there to here? That long stretch of just not being able to find success in the field was mainly attributed to my left-handed swing. Like I wasn't really able to figure out what was going on. And in fact, my right-handed swing that year is what kept my average where it was. If I, I think I hit around two fifty on the year right-handed. So, like I can imagine, if I wasn't having success right-handed too, there's no telling what my average would look like and just numbers in general. So it was a matter of stepping back really looking at how my swing was being broken down on video and what my body was doing and how I'm able to go from there, make a mechanical change that works, that didn't feel like it was overdoing anything to just completely change who I was as a player. Because I still wanted to be the guy that was tough out, could hit a ball hard, find a way to get on base, and then potentially have some pop behind it when I got something I can handle. So that's, that's what it was. It was a matter of looking at video, breaking things down, and then moving
0: forward from there. seem to have very good self-awareness, and certainly it can always get better. A great two-year improvement for Cedric Mullins. Thanks for joining us, Cedric. Thank you. We're also joined today by Adam Dorowski. Adam is the head of user experience for SportsReference.com. You might remember that last year we talked to Gary Ashwell and Larry Lester about Negro League baseball history to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues. And we specifically focused on defense. We got into stats and we got into stories. Baseball Reference has picked up on the work of Gary and Larry and many others with this project. The Negro Leagues are major leagues. Seven different Negro Leagues are now listed with the National League and the American League. And their stats are incorporated into major league stats. Adam, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. All right. So can you give us an overview of the project and all that went into it? It's not just statistics. It's articles it's a podcast it's a lot of stuff
2: yeah this kind of has been going on since about last summer the the work started on this although the actual uh, addition of the stats to baseball reference itself came together in the last three or four months and this all uh, had to do not only with the mlb announcement but also with the excellent work that the folks at the negro league seam heads negro league database have done those that you mentioned like gary and larry as well as uh, it was a, an article in The Ringer by Ben Lindbergh that originally kind of uh, ticked this off for Sean. He was uh, asked to be involved in that. And he said that that was really when the, the wheels started turning on this run. And I joined the, the team in November. And this was kind of uh, already underway a little bit. But then we got to do like the work of adding. it. So like you said, we've added the, the stats of the seven Negro Leagues to the American League and National League records. Obviously the Negro leagues are very different and it was a very different type of schedule, different type of organization. So we felt it was very important to add a lot of context around that to describe it. And that was in the form of like help text on player pages and to let them know, you know, why are there fewer games? But also we commissioned uh, a number of Negro league experts to kind of touch a little bit deeper on a lot of these topics that were very important to understanding the nature of these stats because leaderboards have changed. People have a lot of questions. There's the reasons why they've changed is there's uh, fewer games, but also not only are there fewer games in some seasons, but we only have box scores for a certain number of seasons. So there's a lot involved. And yeah, like you said, there's a a podcast that goes in depth through all of this. And it was just (laughs) a huge undertaking and one that I'm, so excited to be a part of.
0: Yeah, it's 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 amazing how much there is. I feel like I barely scratched the surface just by clicking on a few player pages. There was a lot of talk about the Negro Leagues last year with the hundredth anniversary and how the Negro Leagues should be viewed. Why did Sports Reference decide to go big on this?
2: Well, we decided to because it became more and more clear to us that yes, these were major leagues, so they need to be represented on our site. And like I said, that that really started the wheel started turning last summer uh, with Ben Lindbergh's piece. And then, of course, a huge part of it is the availability of the data. I think a lot of people were hesitant to look at the Negro Leagues in this light because we didn't have great data like we do with the American League and National League. Obviously, that's for a whole bunch of other reasons, like the systemic racism of the time leading to different coverage and, and different record keeping and things like that. But the work of, of Gary and Larry and Scott Simkis and Mike Lynch and everybody at the Seamheads database has kind of, it, it brought us leaps and bounds ahead of where we were. So now these, these stats, Larry Lester talked about this in our uh, press conference, like for every hit allowed, we have a hit. For every run allowed, there's a run. These are legit statistics against other major Negro League teams. And, uh, you know, the data is really solid and it works really well on the sites. And now we can even calculate things like OPS plus or RBAT plus and WAR based on like the defensive regression analysis and find all sorts of great stuff. And it basically brings these stats into the baseball reference lexicon and opens us up to so much more research.
0: Yeah, it's really amazing. And I was reading an article yesterday that Travis Sochik wrote for the score about the process that went into this with the not just going on, websites like a newspapers.com which is fantastic but also going to libraries in smaller cities and investigating the daily newspapers that were available at the time. You mentioned war, you mentioned the other stats there are defensive stats, it's really cool what can you uh, maybe we use like a player as an example here like uh, josh gibson or someone who's who's more well known his war is like off the charts right like can you just go through what war shows us on these players
2: right on on a rate basis so as part of this we also for every player we added uh, war per 162 games so We've always had like hits and home runs and everything per 162 games, but we added war. And uh, I'm just bringing it up now, just to double check. I believe it's 10.5 war per 162 games for Josh Gibson. And, and right, yeah, that's crazy. It's, it's unbelievable.
0: His page is amazing. His page... For anyone that hasn't gone to Josh Gibson's page, it is a sea of bold type. It really is amazing. All right, so let's touch on a, a few discoveries. I've I've gone through the site a little bit and found some cool things. One of my favorites is like the 1926 World Series. Major League Baseball, the 1926 World Series is famous for one- Grover Cleveland Alexander coming out of the bullpen. Seventh inning, bases loaded, two outs, one run game. Gets a big strikeout of Tony Lazari. The Cardinals go on to win when Babe Ruth gets caught stealing to end the World Series. Negro League World Series 1926 is unbelievable. It's a best of 11. There are ties. The last game goes down to the wire. It ends on an error. There's all sorts of nuttiness. That's one thing. There are so many other things beyond just like Cool Papa Bell and Buck Leonard and all the, the stars. What are some of the fun things that you've found?
2: Yeah, I guess this is a few different levels. Like we, we know that Josh Gibson, Oscar Charleston, all these players we, we know in and out. There are even some Hall of Famers that I feel like I didn't know all that much about. So the first one for me was opening these uh, stats up and seeing Bullet Rogan. Uh, I was familiar with Bullet Rogan, you know, hearing, you know, Buck O'Neill talking about, uh, some Bullet Rogan stories and, and Bob Kendrick as well. But then when you see his stats in like the baseball reference lexicon with his 161 ERA plus to go along with a 152 OPS plus and just outrageous postseason stats, he's the only player with 60 plus war just in Negro League competition. So the fact that he reached that level and 37.8 of that is as a pitcher. The rest is as a, a hitter and position player. And then <laughs> I was like, Looking at the manager leaderboards, and when we added manager leaderboards, I sorted by winning percentage, and he's first there as well. So just just one of the absolute incredible figures of the game. And I feel like I I didn't look at him enough in that light before, and this is just opening my eyes up to that. Now, as far as players outside of the Hall of Fame that are maybe overlooked uh, in in a way like that, one that I kind of have really gotten drawn to for some reason is John Beckwith. Uh, he played third base. I always knew him as a third baseman power hitter, but uh he played for the Chicago American Giants, Baltimore Black Sox, just a, a, a crazy good hitter, 161 OPS plus, 50 RBAT for 162 games, 6.9 WAR for 162 games. I always thought of him as the shortstop, and yes, that was his primary position, but he only played third base. Sorry, I thought of him as third base. He only played two more games at third base than he did at shortstop. So... He not only did that, but he also caught 11% of his games. So I had no idea about all of that. So he's doing this while playing all of these prime positions. Just a player that was just not on my radar on this level before that these stats have done for me.
0: I'm looking at his page right now and I'm like, my first thought was, okay, 1920s infielder, high batting average. And I'm immediately thinking like, okay, Rogers Hornsby. And what the cool thing is now is that Maybe not like this is something that will develop genera- generationally as people read and learn and get interested, ideally. And I know there's some concerns that you know, the younger generation might not be as into history, but I'm holding out hope that they will. But I think it's cool that you'll be able to associate names uh, in that way. Also, the early 20th century, really the first half of the 20th century is rich in great baseball nicknames. <laughs> Negro Leagues are not an exception. There, yesterday, I'm looking, it was the birthday of a pitcher who was named Steel Arm Davis. Actually, not a pitcher, he was a pitcher and a position player. And I just went to try and look him up again, and I discovered that there were four players who were nicknamed Steel Arm. So now that's a whole rabbit hole that I could go down. Anyway, all right, last word here. Is there anything else that you want to say about this project, the accessibility of it, and uh, where people can find it and such?
2: I mean, it's it's all worked into baseballreference.com right now. Uh, and I have to say, none of this work is possible without the Seamheads folks, uh, Gary, Larry, Scott, Mike, the, the whole crew that went into putting all this data together. We're just the lucky ones that get to, to, to send it out to the world as part of Baseball Reference, which is a total honor, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be part of that. So, yeah, check that out. We've got a landing page that has all the podcasts and articles and everything that you should definitely check out from uh, all kinds of uh negro league experts and uh yeah that's it thanks
0: thank you for uh joining us adam and best of luck with this uh, with this project as it further develops
2: thank you very much
0: this wraps up the sports info solutions baseball podcast for cedric mullins adam durowski and our producer justin stein i'm mark simon stay safe stay well and thank you for listening
1: thank you for tuning in to the sis baseball podcast
0: if you like the show please rate and review us on itunes If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.